Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, written by Anthony T. Browder, Part 2, The Stolen Legacy, continued. Chapter 5, The Rape of Egypt. One of the most important lessons history teaches us is that no civilization lasts forever. Of the many civilizations that have developed in the Nile Valley, only a very few are known to us today. The once grand nation of Kemet is now less than a shadow of its former self. Internal conflicts of the 4th and 3rd millennium BCE made Kemet susceptible to conquests by the Persians, who were later conquered by the Greeks, who were, in turn, conquered by the Romans. Finally, the division of Rome into an eastern and western empire contributed mightily to its inevitable decline. As the western Roman empire grew increasingly weaker, the Vandals, Visigoths, and other Germanic tribes ransacked the nation and finally overthrew it around 476 ACE. The Eastern Roman Empire survived as the Byzantine Empire until it was overthrown by the Turks in 1453. Even though the Roman Empire was now politically extinct, Rome's cultural heritage continued to have a profound impact upon the world. The Roman Catholic Church became a major influence on other cultures, as did the Latin language and the Roman legal and political systems. When the nations of Greece and Rome fell, they were still able to control their land, history, language, and culture. Conversely, when Kemet fell, she was renamed Egypt and her history, culture, language and religion were violated in a manner unlike any nation before or since. Throughout the past 1600 years, Egypt has been raped by wave after wave of foreign invaders who have robbed her temples, desecrated her tombs, and destroyed innumerable artifacts, all in the name of history, science, and distorted perceptions of God. The Islamic Occupation In 640 ACE, the Islamic army attacked the Byzantine Empire and seized control of Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. The Arab military was led by General Amr when the city of Alexandria fell. After their conquest of Egypt, the Arabs expressed little interest in preserving its historical past. The great kings and queens of old had been forgotten, and the mighty temples they had built were now lying in ruins after centuries of neglect. The ability to read the Medu Netcher had been lost for almost 250 years, and the Netcheru or gods of the ancient Kemites, who had been worshipped by both the Greeks and Romans and regarded as pagan by the Byzantines and Coptics, were now looked upon with even greater disdain by the Muslims. 
It has been said that General Amr played a major role in the final destruction of the library and the University of Alexandria. He ordered his army to demolish the last remnants of these educational institutions, and when scholars begged him to spare them, Amr declared, If the library contains what is not in the Quran, it is false. If it contains what is already in the Quran, then it is superfluous. Burn it. In other instances, the temples that were not burned were dismantled, block by block. And the stones were used to build new structures in Cairo and various other cities. Temples that were not destroyed at the hands of men succumbed to the ravages of nature and time. Many temples were literally buried under tons of sand and silt to the point where only their roofs were exposed. These roofs were later used as the floors for the homes that the villagers built on top of them. A number of the advances that the early Arabs made in mathematics and astronomy have now been attributed to their conquest of Egypt. Muslim scholars sought out the writings of Euclid, Galen, Plato, Aristotle, Ptolemy, and other Greek teachings and had them translated into Arabic. Quite often, Coptic monasteries were raided for the valuable books kept in their libraries and the famed caliph, Harun al-Rashid, regularly paid scribes their weight in gold for each manuscript they translated. By 763 ACE, the Arab scientific renaissance was well underway, and the Arabs were making phenomenal strides in the fields of advanced mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. They later developed many scientific instruments which helped to establish the basis for many modern scientific methods. In a recent article in the autumn 1991 issue of Horus Magazine, a publication of Egypt Air Airlines, the author referenced the impact that Greek writings had upon early Arab culture. The introduction of paper to Baghdad in 751 AD ensured that books and libraries flourished and popularized scholarly pursuits. If the Greek manuscripts had not been translated, preserved, and been accessible, then few of the 16th century Renaissance discoveries would have been possible. Beginning in 813 ACE, a major center for learning was created in Baghdad, and a number of universities were established by the new caliph, Abdullah al-Mamun, the son of the former ruler Harun al-Rashid. Al-Mamun was responsible for the translation into Arabic of the astronomical works of Ptolemy. He once claimed that Aristotle appeared to him in a vision and directed him to commission scholars to produce a number of scientific maps of the earth and the heavens. The study of these great works helped the Arabs to become the most scientifically literate people of their day. Unfortunately, Al-Mamun's love for science did not extend into the area of archaeological preservation, for he was responsible for violating one of the greatest monuments in the world, the Great Pyramid. In 820, Al-Mamun led an army of stonemasons, engineers, and architects on an assault of the Great Pyramid in an attempt to find the treasures that were purported to be hidden inside. 
Amamun's men tunneled more than 100 feet through solid masonry before entering into the descending passageway. The Arabs searched in vain for treasure, and in a fit of rage, they destroyed sections of the walls and floors looking for secret passageways, but they found none. It has been rumored that Al-Mamun had a quantity of gold spirited inside the Great Pyramid in an attempt to appease his disgruntled men. When this gold was later discovered, the amount just happened to have equaled the total wages due each man. This coincidence Al-Mamun attributed to the infinite wisdom of Allah. Over the next 500 years, the Arabs removed more than 22 acres of the 100-inch limestone which once covered the outer surface of the pyramid. These stones were used to build several mosques, palaces, and two bridges in and around the city of Cairo. As Islam became more firmly entrenched in Egypt, restrictions were placed on Christians and other tourists. A Catholic monk named Bernard the Wise and several companions bribed their way into Cairo in 870 in an attempt to see the pyramids, which they believed to have been the granaries built by Joseph during the Hebrew enslavement in Egypt. But in 1757, Egypt was invaded by the Turks and became a province of the Turkish Empire. The Turks guaranteed the safety of French and Spanish travelers and other non-Muslims and made Egypt more accessible to outsiders. The incredible edible mummy. 200 years before West Africans were enslaved and sold in the West, the bodies of their Nile Valley ancestors were being marketed and distributed throughout Europe. Illiterate Arab villagers often used mummy cases for firewood and sold the corpses for medicinal purposes. Since the 12th century, mummy had been prescribed as medicine for a variety of illnesses ranging from epilepsy to ulcers. The word mummy derived from the Persian word mumia, mumija in Arabic, and is a term which means pitch or bitumen. Bitumen was one of the substances used by the people of Kemet in the ancient embalming process. Bitumen was similar, to, similar in appearance to piss asphalt, which had long been regarded as a cure for nausea, cuts, bruises, and a variety of other ailments. During the times when piss asphalt was in short supply, mummies were used as a convenient substitute. Before long, businesses were established in Cairo and Alexandria where mummified human flesh was being packaged and exported throughout Western Europe. One ambitious man, John Sanderson, spent a year in Egypt, 1585 to 1586, and purchased more than 600 pounds of mummified flesh, which he exported to England and sold for a substantial profit. It was not uncommon for some individuals to create artificial mummy 
as slicing the flesh off of recently deceased corpses and packing it in asphalt for several months in an attempt to duplicate the real thing. During the European Renaissance, many artists added powdered mummy to their paints with the hope that it would prevent their pictures from cracking with age. As recently as 20 years ago, it was reported that ground mummy could be purchased for $40 an ounce at a pharmacy in New York City. I'm going to pause right here because this right here struck me and I had to Google it just, you know, out of curiosity. And an actual article uh, can be found on Smithsonian's website, Details uh European cannibalism, it gets um, deeper than just taking, which is already horrible, but it gets deeper than taking mummified corpses. This explains a lot. But yeah, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. In the late 18th century, the French began to view Egypt as a site of military significance because of its prime location on the Mediterranean Sea. By 1797, General Napoleon Bonaparte had conquered Italy and began to set his sights on plans that would extend the French Empire into India. In April of 1798, Napoleon was authorized by the French government to conquer Malta and Egypt, and he was also given a directive to build a canal across the Isthmus of Suez, which would connect the Mediterranean and Red Seas. This idea was proposed because it would shorten the distance from France to India by some 4,000 miles and would pave the way for easier access to India and eventual worldwide domination. On May 19, 1798, Napoleon set sail from Toulon in southern France to Egypt with a fleet of 328 ships and 35,000 soldiers. They were also accompanied by an elite corps of 175 scholars who were members of the Scientific and Artistic Commission that was selected by Napoleon to provide a cultural and technological background for his ambitious plans for the colonization of the Nile Valley. These savants, as the commission members were called, brought with them copies of practically every book ever written on Egypt and numerous supplies which included some of the most technically sophisticated scientific and measuring instruments of their day. On the evening of July 1st, 1798, Napoleon's fleet landed at Abukir Bay near the city of Alexandria where they finalized plans for attack. At that time, Egypt was under the control of foreign mercenaries called Mamelukes, who ruled the land for the Turkish Empire. The Mamelukes had an enormous army, but their weapons were no match for the superior firepower of the French cannons and rifles. By noon of July 2nd, the city of Alexandria belonged to Napoleon. By July 3rd, the members of the Scientific and Artistic Commission went ashore and began their research. On July 12th, 1798, Napoleon and an army of 25,000 men marched to the Giza Plateau in preparation for the Great Battle of the Pyramids. 
It was at this site that Napoleon informed his men, soldiers, remember that from the top of these monuments, 40 centuries are looking down upon you. Within two hours, the battle was over. More than 2,000 Mamelukes were killed and Napoleon was said to have lost only 20 men. By July 21st, Napoleon's forces conquered Cairo and shortly thereafter, the commission arrived and established an Institute of Egypt, which was housed in one of five palaces appropriated for their special use. Napoleon suffered his first defeat in Africa at the hands of the British Admiral Lord Nelson, who had amassed a fleet of ships and followed Napoleon to Egypt. Nelson demolished the French Navy in the Battle of the Nile on August 1st, 1798, and established a blockade that cut Napoleon's supply lines from France and Malta. During the course of the following year, the British developed alliances with the Turks and the Russians and continued to pose a serious threat to Napoleon's plans for world conquest. On August 12, 1799, three days before his 30th birthday, Napoleon toured the Great Pyramid and asked to be left alone inside of the king's chamber to contemplate his future, as Alexander of Macedonia had reportedly done before him. Upon exiting the chamber, hours later, Napoleon was described as pale and impressed. He later hinted that he had received a glimpse of his destiny, but he refused to discuss with anyone the details of his experience. Ten days after this event, on August 22nd, Napoleon left Egypt and returned to France. He crossed the Mediterranean in a small boat to avoid the British blockade, and he arrived in Paris on October 16th. Napoleon orchestrated a coup d'etat November 9th, 1799 and was named the first consul the following day. By 1804, Napoleon had crowned himself Emperor of France. After Napoleon fled Egypt for France, the British Navy maintained their blockade of Alexandria, and the Turks continued to engage the French troops in minor skirmishes. Despite these and many other persistent problems, the members of the Scientific and Artistic Commission continued their research throughout Egypt, where they remained for a total of three years. The savants followed the French army as they pressed their way into Upper Egypt to the very borders of the city of Aswan. Whenever the French came under attack, the troops would form their famous fighting squares, which were ten soldiers deep, and give their aggravating directive savants and asses to the center. The savants were not looked upon favorably by Napoleon's army, and they were not provided with weapons or rations. The soldiers believed that the savants' role was to look for hidden treasure and civilize the barbaric Egyptians. During their excursions in Egypt, the savants saw many objects that are no longer in existence, such as the Temple of Armand, which was dismantled when its stones were used to build a sugar factory. In 1799, a general by the name of Dessay, a general by the name of Dessay, discovered the marvelous Temple of Dendera, which contained a wondrous circular 
zodiac in the ceiling of a room that was believed to have been used as an observatory. The zodiac was dynamited from the ceiling by the men and shipped to France, where it was later sold to Louis XVIII for 150,000 francs. It is now prominently displayed in the Louvre, the Louvre Museum. One of the most significant discoveries made during the French occupation of Egypt was that of a black basalt tablet with carved inscriptions. This stone was found half buried in the soil by a member of Captain Pierre Bouchard's engineering corps in 1799 as they were digging fortifications at Fort Rashid near the town of Rosetta. Realizing the possible importance of this stone, Bouchard shipped it to the Egyptian Institute in Cairo. Copies and casts of this stone were made and immediately shipped to France for further investigation. The Rosetta Stone, as it was later called, was inscribed with three translations of a text, divided into three columns, Medonetra at the top, Demotic, a late cursive form of Medonetra in the middle, and Greek at the bottom. The Demotic was the best preserved. The Greek portion was partially damaged, and two-thirds of the Medonetra had been destroyed. Despite its condition, this stone provided the modern world with the first key to deciphering the long-forgotten language of Kemet, the Medonetra. The Greek inscription was easily translated and found to contain a decree written in 196 BCE to commemorate the crowning of Ptolemy V. Segments of the Demotic text were decoded over the following years, but the Medonetra would remain undecipherable for almost a quarter of a century. While Napoleon was back in France suffering from delusions of grandeur, his enemies, the British, Turks, and the Mamulekes, were rapidly seizing control of Egypt. On August 30th, 1801, the French troops surrounded, surrendered to the British and began to negotiate terms for their safe return to their homeland. One of the major stipulations imposed by the British was that they would inherit all of the Egyptian artifacts discovered by the Scientific and Artistic Commission. The French scholars vehemently refused, and at one point in the negotiations, they threatened to destroy all of their findings rather than give them to the British. A compromise was eventually reached with the commission, but the British insisted they must have possession of the Rosetta Stone. During the negotiations with the British, the Rosetta Stone was being kept in the home of the French general Manu in Alexandria. One evening, under cover of darkness, a British colonel named Thomas Turner assembled a team of men who raided Manu's house and seized the prized tablet. With the Rosetta Stone now in the possession of the British, the savants were permitted to return to France with their notes, drawings, and selected artifacts. Upon their arrival in France, the members of the commission were instructed by Napoleon to produce a monumental work which was to document the sites, buildings, inscriptions, life, language, and manners of the ancient and modern Egyptians. During the course of the next 25 years, a legion of artists, engravers, and typographers produced a 19-volume masterpiece entitled Description de l'Egypte, 
This state-published document helped turn France's military defeat in Egypt into a major archaeological and political triumph, which formally legitimized the study of Egyptology. The description de l'Egypte shattered the myth of the cultural supremacy of the Homeric Greeks and established Egypt as the forerunner of all ancient civilizations. So impressed were the Americans with this academic achievement that they elected Napoleon Bonaparte and the famed French artist Vivant Denon as honorary members to the newly formed American Academy of Arts. While the world was now savoring the visual delights of ancient Egypt, which the description not provided them, they were still unable to read the ancient language. However, 23 years after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, a young Frenchman named Jean-Francois Champollion succeeded where others had failed and deciphered the hieroglyphic alphabet in 1822. With the French now basking in international glory, the government financed a 17-month expedition to Egypt in 1828, which allowed Champollion to conduct primary research on the history and language of ancient Egypt. Champollion was further rewarded for his scholarship by being appointed the first professor of Egyptology at the Collège de France in 1831. His career ended abruptly when he died a year later at the age of 42. Champollion was responsible for bringing to France innumerable artifacts from his tour in Egypt, including a Tekken he secured from Muhammad Ali in exchange for a clock which never worked. One of the two Tekken that stood in front of the Temple of Luxor, the Tekken was transported to Paris in 1830 and erected in the Place de la Concorde on October 25, 1836. The Khedives and British Occupation of Egypt France and England had been at odds with each other for a number of years, for both sought to control and dominate the world, and each saw the other as the major obstacle to their success. The British roused the French out of Egypt in 1801 and finally defeated Napoleon's forces at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. While the French and the British were bitter enemies, they frequently forgot their differences when it came to matters regarding the acquisition of Egyptian antiquities. As European nations were forming national museums to ensure the survival of their own heritage, they were also taking a profound interest in the culture of other lands. One of the first national museums created was the British Museum, which was established by an Act of Parliament in 1756 and formally opened in 1762. As the interest in Egyptian antiquities grew, so did the collection in the Egyptian gallery of the British Museum. The British expressed little desire in annexing Egypt and making it a part of their empire, and they chose to allow the Turks to control the territory. In 1805, 
a Macedonian-born mercenary named Mohamed Ali, who had risen to power while serving in the Turkish army in Egypt, became the new ruler of Egypt. Mohamed Ali was a cold and calculating despot whose primary interest was in consolidating his power and selling the riches of Egypt to the highest bidder. On May 1st, 1811, Muhammad Ali annihilated his primary adversary, the Mamulekes, after extending an invitation to them to attend a great feast in his honor. As a contingent of 420 Mamulekes arrived at the citadel of Muhammad Ali, they were diverted into a small street, ambushed and murdered in a barrage of rifle and cannon fire. Under Muhammad Ali's rule, Egypt was stripped of thousands of artifacts by tourists, collectors, and various fortune hunters. Members of the British diplomatic corps were extremely successful in buying and smuggling numerous treasures out of Egypt, which eventually wound up in the British Museum or in private collections. In 1816, Henry Salt was appointed the British Consul General of Egypt, and he was simultaneously hired by the trustees of the British Museum. Salt was charged by William Hamilton, the Undersecretary of State at the Foreign Office, with the responsibility of finding another Rosetta Stone, whatever the expense of the undertaking. During this same period, the French, also looking for Egyptian artifacts, were giving the British stiff competition. Salt reached an understanding with his major rival and French counterpart, Bernardino Giovetti. Together, they agreed to divide the Nile Valley into spheres of influence for their respective nations. Salt and Giovetti were also quite successful at eliminating most of their competitors by hook or crook. Howard Carter the British discoverer of the tomb of Tutankhamun described this era in the early 19th century as the great days of excavating. Anything to which a fancy was taken from a scarab to an obelisk was just appropriated. And if there was a difference with a brother excavator, one laid for him with a gun. As a means of ensuring the trustees of the British Museum that they would have access to the finest discoveries ancient Egypt had to offer, Salt secured the services of Giovanni Battista Belzoni, the man who would later be referred to as the greatest plunderer of them all. Belzoni was an Italian-born soldier of fortune who had made a living as a circus strongman before entering the field of archaeology. He was a commanding figure who stood over six feet six inches in height and his immense strength, knowledge of hydraulics, and commanding personality were the primary skills that led to his enormous success. Within a period of three years, Belzoni excavated the temple of Abu Simbel, gained entry into the second pyramid at Giza, discovered the royal tomb of Seti I, father of Ramesses II, recovered a statue of Amenhotep III, an obelisk from Philae Temple, and a host of numerous other artifacts. In a written account of his exploits as a tomb robber, 
Belzoni openly described his reason for living. My purpose was to rob the Egyptians of their papyri, papyri, of which I found a few hidden in their breasts, under their arms, in the space above the knees or on the legs and covered by the numerous folds of cloth. Belzoni also commented on some of the difficulties he encountered while plundering the tombs for papyri. I sought a resting place, found one, and contrived to sit, but when my weight bore on the body of an Egyptian, it crushed like a bandbox. I naturally had recourse to my hands to sustain my weight, but they found no better support, so that I sunk altogether among the broken mummies, with a crash of bones, rags, and wooden cases, which raised such a dust as kept me motionless for a quarter of an hour, waiting till it subsided again. Belzoni retired to London in 1820, where he penned his memoirs and gained instant notoriety among all quarters of the city. On May 1st, 1821, Belzoni exhibited his findings in the Egyptian Hall in Piccadilly, where he drew more than 1,900 visitors on the first day. One of the main attractions of the opening was the unwrapping of the mummy of a young man who was advertised as being perfect in every part. Some of the leading doctors in London were invited to witness this macabre striptease show. Of all the finds in Egypt, the discovery of the tomb of the young king, Tutankhamun, in 1922 by the British Egyptologist Howard Carter ranks as the most significant. This was the first and only tomb of an Egyptian king which was discovered intact. Carter's expedition was financed by a fellow countryman named Lord Carnar Carnarvon, Carnarvon, who gave the contents of the tomb to the Cairo Museum. However, it was discovered more than 60 years later that both Carnarvon and Carter had secretly transported items out of the tomb, which they kept in private collections. These actions are not surprising, as they reflect the moral consciousness of the men who profited in the robbing of ancient graves. Regarding these activities, Howard Carter once commented, One can imagine the plotting beforehand the secret rendezvous on the cliff by night, the bribing or drugging of the cemetery guards and the desperate burrowing in the dark, the scramble through a small hole into the burial chamber, the hectic search by glimmering light for treasure that was portable, and the return home at dawn laden with booty.